0: is a mighty lord. Language is a might lord. By means of the finestable body finest. by means of the finestable body finest works. You can stop fear and banish grief a joy. Stop fear and banish grief a joy. Stop fear and banish grief jaw. Language is a might lord. Language is a mighty Today sufferest thou still from the multitude, thou individual. Today Hast thou still thy courage, unabated, and thy hopes? Who is that? That's Nietzsche. That's the Spake Zarathustra. Um, This is the Content Blues Podcast, and I'm Andrew. Uh, The reason I'm starting in with uh, Nietzsche is because I sat down last night and I watched something I've been sitting on for a while which was uh Blade Runner 2049, the Blade Runner sequel that came out two years ago, three years ago, somewhere in there. And uh it got me thinking, because it's a thinky kind of a movie. It's a it's a thinky kind of a movie. And uh that whole Nietzsche quote there from Thus Spake Zarathustra about individuals and crowds fits the whole theme of of Blade Runner in general quite well. Uh the title is strange. The title is strange. Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep is not a good title. It's it's very 60s. That was the Philip K. Dick short story that Blade Runner was based on. Um, but it's not a good title. It's very 60s. It's very tongue-in-cheek. It's, it does a disservice to the material within. Uh, Blade Runner is the title of a William Burroughs short story or a William Burroughs novel or one of them that I didn't read. I talked about Burroughs last time. And I don't want to talk anymore about him again, but the name Blade Runner, that's a good title. It is short, memorable, and evocative. It gives forth ideas of violence and speed, and it fits the world of that story very well. They actually licensed the title from the story for use in the movie simply because Ridley Scott thought it sounded better, and he was right. He was right. Uh, Burroughs actually gets a, a credit in the credits for thanks for use of the name for a completely different story that has nothing to do with what's going on in Blade Runner. Uh... When I was a kid, they always used to say, whenever a sequel was made, that it's better than the original. Uh, That's always, always, always marketing fluff and not to be believed. Uh, I don't think any sequel is ever really better than the original. There are some ones that are as good. I've talked about them on the other podcast. But it's very rare to find a movie, a sequel that builds upon, uh, the other one and improves the story, makes the other original film better. But I think Blade Runner 2049 actually does that. The reason no sequel ever rises because no sequel is ever as creative. Uh, no sequel, um, builds a world. It's just playing around in a world already built And that's fine if there's more story to tell, but very often there isn't more story to tell. Very often there's simply more money to be made and that's why they exist. But in this case, and other people have said this, so I'm not really saying anything terribly original, but, uh, Blade Runner 2049 actually, uh, builds the world out, builds the story out, creates, uh characters that are interesting to watch and gives them arcs and transformation that uh, it has something to say beyond the world uh for the original Blade Runner the characters are just kind of there to show us the world and uh, any emotionality they happen to have going into their lives is almost beside the point um which is why you know the antagonist, uh Rutger Hauer kind of takes over because he's he's the only character that seems to really want to accomplish something or has something to do. So he kind of takes on the antagonist and protagonist roles, which is not generally what you want. And that's the major flaw in Blade Runner. But the last time I watched the original Blade Runner, I was uh really impressed with the way the world was built visually. With with how oppressive a world it is, and I'm talking about the first one now, the original Blade Runner. It's it's a wonderfully monolithic, oppressive, stymieing, miserable, overwhelming world that is created in which the desire of an individual soul to simply breathe free air. Uh, really kind of trumps any kind of uh, normal story elements that you would put in. Which is why, even though Blade Runner's severely lacking in a lot of the things that you would uh, want out of a movie, it's still memorable in a way that very few movies that were made then are. Um, We're still talking about it. Uh, It's still a movie worth seeing. Uh, Even with its flaws. Uh, The 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 world that it creates is so creates such an impression that you overlook the flaws, but Blade Runner twenty forty nine improved the flaws and uh, gave us characters that mattered and gave us gave characters things to do in that world that mattered, gave us the possibility that the world could be made other than it was. Uh, Blade Runner ends on a miserable down note. Really sad and and upsetting, and and the sequel does the opposite of that in a, in a way that I thought was was quite meaningful. Um, even Harrison Ford is good in this, like genuinely good, genuinely creating emotions. Good, which is the opposite of what he did in the first movie, uh, because I think Harrison Ford is is really, really quite limited as a performer, and if he doesn't have the right script. He can't give you uh, what he can do. It's um, He's pretty much low-rent Clint Eastwood. He's a less talented Clint Eastwood. He's Clint Eastwood with less range, Harrison Ford. And uh, outside of a few specific kind of characters, he's boring. And he's spent an entire career trying to be other than what fits him. And that hasn't worked. That hasn't worked. Uh, he's not really a thespian. He's a star. And there's a difference between them. John Wayne was a star. Marilyn Monroe was a star. Uh, Meryl Streep is a thespian. Yafala, she's not a star. You, you watch the technique, you don't really watch her. um i'm i'm speaking in in very broad brushes uh but uh this is an opinion that i've had and i've actually blogged about on content blues why hollywood needs stars um it has to do with the the difference between the uh cinema medium and the theater medium and how different kinds of acting are required in order to create truly memorable pieces of art and uh stars in hollywood create memorable pieces of art i saw something interesting on twitter which was uh someone saying like it's kind of amazing how famous angelina jolie is when you really can't think of a major breakout or fascinating performance or great movie that she's done and that's true there are no great angelina jolie movies Angelina Jolie is nevertheless a star. Uh, You put her in a movie and you see her and she's always kind of her with with minor variations. But she's a face and a persona that people enjoy seeing and always have. Um, She's a star. She's a star. Dwayne the Rock Johnson is a star. Not necessarily a great actor, but incredibly likable. And people like to see him in stuff. That's a star. That's a star. I've made my point. Speaking of movies, uh, normally I'm the kind of person who uh, who doesn't care at all about what's coming out because that's me. That's I mean, if you've been reading content blues. I'm sure. I'm sure you know all about that, and I kind of talked about it last time. But I saw a trailer that excited me a lot. And that was the, uh, the trailer for The Green Knight, which is a, uh, a cinematic retelling of an old Arthurian legend, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, which is minorly obscure, but not too obscure. And uh, there are a lot of, of King Arthur movies, but I don't think there are any actual Gawain and the Green Knight movies. So this looked interesting. It was an A24 movie, and it has that A24 aesthetic. It looks like low-grade horror, or at least there are horror elements mixed into the adventure story, which I think is entirely appropriate. But it looked really good, and it interested me because, hey, here's something I haven't seen a thousand times already. Made by a quality production house this might be worth checking out. So if you haven't seen the trailer for The Green Knight, I think it's coming out sometime this year or perhaps next year, but get on the YouTube and take a gander at it if you would all like uh, anything medieval or Arthurian legends or just, you know, something off the beaten track. Uh, I recommend this trailer wholeheartedly. I recommend this trailer. It's two minutes out of your life. And uh, hopefully the movie will be as good. We'll we'll have to put a pin in that. What did I do? What did I do? I had uh, I had money to spend, uh, or or the illusion that I had money to spend. But I spent money, and I I got myself two things that I've been meaning to get for a while. And one of them is uh, another Penguin Classic, uh, great ideas Penguin Classic of. Montaigne's on solitude which um i was supposed to read at least some of for this but i didn't so i'm gonna have to put a pin in that Montaigne is one of those guys i've been meaning to read because he seems like a he would be a genial read like i don't have to fight with the text i can just listen to the guy have ideas which to me is always the best kind of philosophy you're just listening to a guy have ideas and he's clarifying his ideas and spelling them out um uh, I I am gonna have to dip my tone to the postmoderns a little more, but uh, it's I given the choice, I would much rather read uh, Montaigne or Thomas Hobbes than than Foucault. The Continentals, they are uh, they are chore, but I'll get to that. I'll get to that at some point. Uh, the other thing I bought was a jazz album, from a era of jazz which seems to be becoming my favorite. And that's the uh, the fusion period of Miles Davis. Um, I don't really think I need to explain why I like that, uh, do I? It's it's funk. It's very funky. It's jazz with electric guitars. It's uh, it's unexpected. You know, you can talk about uh, bebop and hard bop and cool jazz and modal jazz and all those varieties of jazz from the forties and fifties. Um, but to me, they all sound kind of samey tonally speaking. Anyway, they all have the same kind of tone and mood, the same kind of colors. Even if you can tell the variations and difference between, you know, what Thelonious Monk is doing versus Coltrane, um, just to pull names out of a hat, uh, they all kind of have the same emotional tone and emotional mood. Whereas the fusion stuff Miles started doing in the sixties and seventies was definitely had a different flavor. Um, I have several of those albums from that period. The one I didn't have is one of the more extreme ones, which is, uh, which is get up with it uh, from 1974. Uh, It's perhaps not as extreme as on the corner. It sounds like melodies, on the corner just sounds like being attacked by a beehive, and it's great if you uh, uh, if you're in that mood. But who's who's in that mood? Uh, a lot. You you kind of have to strap on and take the ride if you're going to listen to to on the corner. But get up with it has kind of uh, it's similar, but it's like dialed back a little bit. It it reminds me more like of uh, in a silent way. Not not in a silent way. More like Jack Johnson. More like Jack Johnson, I think. In a silent way is still a little too second quintet. Um But uh I started I got it on vinyl because I'm a nerd. And I put it on and uh it, it sounded as good as these the samples I'd heard. And it's it's very extensive. It uh it's a double album, so it does what double albums do, which is just take the time with every tune and let it let it let it spend itself, let it let it do what it wants to do. Double albums are when uh, artists decide that they're done, they're done um, trying to make something that's going to be marketable. It's all about just throwing the stuff out there letting the uh letting the ur mind or the the reptile creativity just just get it out and edit it later or just toss it out there i mean usually usually artists do double albums when they're established and they're they're bored with what they have been doing that's exile on main street that's the white album that's london calling and it's it's get up with it and it's Enjoyable to just listen to somebody play with the sound, which is really what what jazz jazz ought to be about, and it's it's not as uh, as hostile as on the corner, but it's it's got some sadness to it, and some uh, some intensity, which which is which is quite wonderful. Um, jazz can be uh, can be something you really have to. Pay attention to 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 really get something out of it, and jazz can be very frustrating to people because it doesn't uh, it doesn't really like uh, fulfill expectations and common expectations that you have from music. It's uh and that's not necessarily a good thing because sometimes, like on like Sun Ra or something like that, it can just be farting around forever and deliberately frustrating like uh I can't get into to really avant-garde jazz like Ornette Coleman or anything like that. I find that's just you know you're just making fart noises with your trumpet into the microphone. And it doesn't it doesn't say anything to me. So that's kind of where I draw the line, but uh fusion stuff has a has a wonderful has a wonderful intensity, and it's almost half rock and roll anyway. So I can appreciate it on that vibe. Um, the interesting thing about it is, is that I don't, you don't hear about fusion jazz artists a lot, other than Miles Davis. I'm sure there are, and I'm sure I'm just betraying my lack of knowledge. But it kind of begins and ends with him. Like no one really picked up the torch of that idea and carried it. Unless his ideas led to something else altogether, which is, which is quite possible, um, there may be some connective tissue between like that era of Miles and like the last poets and uh, some disco, and which then became hip hop, and that's the phone ringing. It's fine. I was done with that anyway. I was done talking about that. I had made my point. I'm ready now to talk about other things. Um, Very specifically, I'm going to talk about what is uh, perhaps the most significant piece of of short fiction uh, written in the last uh, five or six years. Um, that's a bold statement, and I probably can't back it up with anything like uh, a consensus of opinion because, you know, consensus of opinion is formed by people who draw paychecks from large corporations, so their opinion is flawed. So, uh, in my opinion, uh, the most significant piece of short fiction published in the last five or six years is The God-Shaped Hole, a entirely web Published story, web-written story, story really written for the web, which is an archaic phrase, but I'm going to keep to it anyway. By an author who is anonymous, a guy who goes on uh, Twitter under the name uh, of Zero HP Lovecraft, which is a, a pretty good Twitter handle, a little bit derivative, but we're going to forgive him for that. Um, I don't know his real name. Uh, he's exactly like Delicious Tacos, who I've uh, written about on Content Blues. I've read quite a bit of Delicious Tacos, and uh, where Delicious Tacos is uh, is sorrowful and uh, and wry. Zero HP Lovecraft is a self-described horrorist, and uh, what he writes is horror for the technical age. Uh, he basically updates the whole Lovecraft idea of a, a hostile universe, an indifferent universe, uh, a universe in which we have no hope but to be uh, enslaved by things more powerful than ourselves, and updates it for, uh, for current year. Um, God-Shaped Hole is, of course, a, uh, a quotation that's often ascribed to Pascal. It's a religious idea, the, uh, something that's pulled out of the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, that states that God uh, puts an eternity in the heart of man. Yeah, an eternity in man's heart in Ecclesiastes 3.11. And uh, Pascal supposedly said, truncated that into the God-shaped hole, which is an idea you find uh, in certain Christian writings, Christian apologetic writings. And um, Zero HP Lovecraft depends on you knowing that, uh, to understand his story he basically sets a, a story you know in the not too distant future in which uh sex with robots has become the norm and everybody has a bot and it's very high tech and not only has uh has that become normalized but pretty much everything is virtual reality now like you don't walk through the world your reality that you observe is entirely entirely a a, uh, a virtual reality world and uh, the tech is kind of placed over your eyes and you just kind of see a world that you want to see as it gets you through your day and you do your job and everything's gamified even your job is gamified and it's all fake everything is fake there's there's very little reality and um it's it's amazing technology. It's fully immersive. Life is a video game now. And for our unnamed protagonist, it is, uh... It's, it's empty. And for reasons he cannot fully describe, he starts seeking after something else, something more real. And that leads him to a discovery of, of cosmic horror. And, uh... It... It is, it is dreadful. I'm not the sort of person who sends a, um, direct messages on, on Twitter, but after I, I sat down and read this and I tried to read it, get it started several times and finally sat and read it all the way through. I was so impressed by it that I, I had to send the guy a direct message because I follow him on Twitter, zero HP Lovecraft. He has a, an, an at sign, a Twitter handle that looks nothing like that. It looks like gibberish um but i wrote to him and told him that how good i thought his work was and that i you know i'd read my share of lovecraft and bits of the king in yellow and other cthulhu mythos stuff and that's mostly at this point in history got to the point where it's adorable and it's become monetized and you can buy cthulhu plushies and it appears on Rick and Morty and it's just there there's no there's no dread. Cthulhu's not scary anymore. It's it's like jaws. It's like Darth Vader. Anything that was initially like terrifying about it has been uh, has been disney stored away. Um so Lovecraft is is really just a uh, reading Lovecraft is just like here's how you write cosmic dread horror and uh but anyway, because this was updated and I I said to him in a direct message, it had an emotional impact that none of these other things had. It has a, a sense of nausea, of wrongness, and scales falling from the eyes, created a feeling not unlike Vertigo. It feels very current. It feels like the world we're starting to enter or start to get into. It it It's genuinely terrifying. Um... So I've never, I've never written an author or direct message on Twitter before, but I had to do it for this one because the story was that good. And he's written other things that I haven't had a chance to read yet. And uh, he's supposed to be working on a volume or novel or some published work available for sale because all his stuff's just basically free on his website, on his WordPress account right now. And you can just read it for free because... He just writes because he wants to write. He's not, uh, he's not trying to sell it, at least not yet. Like the guy's got a day job. He's anonymous. He's, he's no one. He's everyone, which is, uh, just so fitting for, for current year. It's, it's so fitting that I feel like a fraud at trying to create works that I want people to sell and real. It's, it feels like falsehood to me. Um, so if you like horror and you specifically like Lovecraft um, or anything of like that Cthulhu Mythos stuff and you wanna you want you want the 21st century version of it you need to just go ahead and and read the god-shaped whole because in it uh, sex basically becomes horror um, divorced from anything like its biological function it becomes literally a beast Uh... And it it speaks to the spiritual problem of our age, which is that we as humans have needs, which are greater than mechanics, greater than economics. We are more than that. And we have forgotten that, um, we are more than beasts with shoes and a dental plan. There's a part of us that's greater, um, and if God doesn't get to that part of us, then something else will. On a final and perhaps unrelated or actually quite related note, um, a kind of a broad statement, which which touches on uh, a lot of significant things going on in, in our culture at, the, at this point in, in current year. Uh, And that statement is uh, Funko Pops are of the devil. I hate them. I hate seeing them. I wanna kick them. I wanna smash them with a hammer. They're the worst thing that has ever been made by humans. Um, Yeah, pretty much that. Uh, I don't know why I hate them so much, but I do. I do. I could I could pause here and and analyze myself. There there's something so completely useless about them. They're they're nothing but hunks of plastic that you like buy to like remind yourself of your fandom. And and fandom has become a, a deeply, deeply problematic uh thing for me. Uh I kind of hate fans now and fandoms and being fans of things it's kind of the worst because it, I think because it has become so performative so uh, it's it's not even something you can simply enjoy you have to identify yourself with it and that's that's why like I, I don't like Funko Pops because it's like it's like buying a religious token for a religion that, that doesn't really exist it's just imaginary. None of this stuff is real. And you know, there've always been fan things and fan product and fan merchandise. That's, that's always existed. But for some reason, these are so garbage and disposable. And whenever I see them in someone's house, I, I, I make small uh, inside and, uh, yeah, and, and, and speaking of, of anonymous uh, cranks on Twitter, the anonymous crank Mencius Moldbug Man uh, had a whole thread about, about Funko Pops. And uh, that's kind of what prompted me to, to say how much I hate them and, and, and always have. I think, uh, I think the peak of the thread is when he says that you can buy a glow-in-the-dark bobblehead... Funko Pop of the character Alex DeLarge from the film A Clockwork Orange, and you can drop, because it's rare, because it's rare, it's a rare Funko Pop, it can go for as large as $13,000. $13,000. Can you imagine? You could buy a car with that. You could buy a car or you could buy a tiny little funking hunk of plastic to remind yourself how much you like a Clockwork Orange. How much do you want to bet that someone who dropped that much on a Funko Pop from Clockwork Orange has never actually read the book? Or maybe they have. Maybe they have six different editions of the book. You Maybe they have the uh, the the original U.S. version that had no, that didn't have the 21st paragraph removed, and a first edition from the U.K. version that did, and then the, the secondary edition with the preface. He's he's probably that kind of nerd who would drop 13 grand on a Funko Pop. What madness is this? What madness is this? And they're worse than Beanie Babies. Beanie Babies... Are at least soft and cuddly, and you could give them to a baby, and it, it can play with it. it. It's actually a beanie baby can actually be useful in that respect, you know, beyond its its uh, you know tulip hysteria function, you know, beyond its South Seas bubble aspect of it. You can actually do something with a beanie baby. You can give it to an infant and and it will you will accomplish something with your day. But Funko Pops are useless and I, the only thing the only thing I'd ever want to use them for is skeet. Stop buying them. Stop buying them all of you. Because we're going to look back on this and we are going to be infinitely more ashamed than, than even the beanie baby craze. At least I hope so. Cause if I'm wrong and 20 years from now, we're still buying Funko pops. That would be worse. Now for the part where I shill, the website is content blues. The Patreon is shallow and pedantic. The Gumroad is also Gumroad.com shallow and pedantic. There's a YouTube channel. There's a death card. La-da-da-da-da. Like and subscribe. Yeah.